It's good to see you guys. My name is Tony. If you're new or visiting, kind of checking us out, I have the privilege of serving here as pastor. Uh, If you are uh, a kid and you are in elementary school, your teachers are standing right over there. Miss Jeannie is over there. Uh, Why don't you guys go with them? You're going to have an awesome time, learn a little bit about Jesus and hang out with some friends. And if you are in middle school or high school, our middle schooler and high schoolers are starting over in the the building across the way. So if you'd like to join them, uh, we can guide you over there as well. I think all of you guys already are there. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, So as you know, we're traveling through the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 6 at the moment. And we've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things, right? John starts in the prologue. He talks about the word being made flesh. He talks about the word who was in the beginning, uh, taking on human flesh and becoming the light and life of the world. Right then John talks about John the Baptist. We see how Jesus calls some followers. And then we start going through the signs Jesus does. Remember, John talks in terms of signs. He says, hey, there's these signs. And these signs are ways that lead us deeper, reveal more about who Jesus is. So there's the sign at Cana. It's the first one. Jesus makes wine from water. Right? And then we keep traveling. He meets a guy named Nicodemus and tells him, hey, you got to be born again. Right? And they have this long dialogue. And then we get into chapter four and Jesus meets this woman at a well who's an outcast and he offers her living water. And the last chapter we watched as Jesus heals this guy at a pool on the Sabbath, which is an amazing miracle for this guy, but leads to this whole chapter of dialogue and conflict. And what we're going to see in chapter six is again, Jesus is going to start doing stuff, more signs that in chapter six lead to more dialogue and conflict. Specifically, what we're going to see today is Jesus meets a crowd of people uh, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and he makes bread multiply and fish multiply so that the crowds are satisfied. This is how the story goes. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Oh, sorry, because the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing what a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little other, one of the, his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. What are they? But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So that's from the ESV, English Standard Version. Now, 
What I want to do this morning is sort of approach this text uh, from three different angles. First, I just kind of want to retell the story because uh, I think there's some nuances and elements in there that we might miss. Second, I want to explore the first century significance of the story. So this is what happened. What did it mean for that audience as John was writing? And then third, lean into, okay, so how does that translate into our context? So first, let's talk about the story itself. So Jesus and his disciples, they're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias sometimes. Uh, They're on the eastern side. And I remember being in Israel and kind of getting a sense for where they thought this feeding happened. And the, the idea is it's far enough away, it's far enough east that there aren't, you're distant enough from Bethlehem or uh, Capernaum and some of those northern Galilee villages that they're far enough out, right, that they can't quite make it back for food. Now, these people, they're following him because they've seen these signs, right? They've watched as he's done these different miracles and they're following because they're kind of curious about it. I'm sure their motivations are diverse and various. But we know right now, right, verse 10, it says there's lots of grass, and we know it's Passover, so we know it's spring. So you know, as Jesus is walking up into the hills, these are green hills. So kind of imagine, it's actually kind of like our hills, right? It says mountain, but we know it's not really a mountain. It's kind of like a solid hill. Um, And, you know, they're walking up, you know, if you go in the winter, if you go, or if you go right now uh, in the end of summer, well, it feels like winter. Sorry, I'm sort of confusing it. It's like, can we please have some more sun? Anyway, I digress. It's, isn't this this funny thing, though, when you live in the peninsula? It's kind of like, if it's sunny, like my family was at the beach yesterday. It was like, you drop everything, you're in the sun. All right. So if you go out to the hills right now, they're brown. It's very similar in Galilee, right? So eastern side of Siberia's, uh, type Sea of Tiberias, you go out there, it's brown. Right? But if we go in the winter, go in the spring, right, it becomes really lush and green. Very similar. So Jesus looks out from atop of one of those hills and he sees this large crowd gathered below him. Now imagine, so it says the disciples are with him. So there's this group of 12. They're up on the top of this knoll looking down. Philip is next to him and he sort of looks at him uh, like, hey, Philip. How are we going to feed these guys? Because right? they all know at this point they're overextended. They're beyond their ability to go to a grocery store, which didn't really exist, right? And if you have 5,000 men plus women plus kids, if they went into a village, it's like a hostile takeover, basically, right? Like that is too many people f- for these villages to absorb. So they are far enough away. So he looks over at Philip. How are we going to feed these people? And Philip's like, well... You know, 200 denarii wouldn't even feed these people. Wouldn't even give them enough to eat, you know. 200 denarii, two, it's about 200 days worth of days wages. Right? So two-thirds of a salary. That's not chump change. That's a lot of cash. So he's saying that, and Jesus is like, oh, okay, you know. And then Andrew's sitting next to him, and Andrew's like looking around, and he sees this kid with five loaves and two fish. He's like, well, if we take this kid's food, like a little bully, you know, at lunchtime, we're bigger, you know, there's 12 of us. Anyway, he's like, if we take this kid's food, it wouldn't even feed hardly any of them. And Jesus says, okay, sit down. Tell the crowds to sit down, right? So now they're sitting in these grassy hills, you know, somewhere between probably 10 and 15,000 people total, right? This is a big number of people. Jesus is standing there 
Presumably, he asks this little kid for the five loaves because now he has them in his possession. What he does, right, he gives thanks for the loaves. First century Jewish, uh, there's a first century Jewish prayer before you ate. It went like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Maybe he said that, maybe he said something different, but that was a normal prayer where you give thanks for the bread. Jesus takes the bread, right? gives thanks. Presumably he breaks it at this point and distributes it. He does something similar with the fish, it seems like. And in verse 11, it says this, they had as much as they wanted. So these five loaves and these two fish end up feeding this group of people, not just like a nibble, not just a little pinch, right? They had as much as they wanted. Right? And when they're done, Jesus invites them to gather up the leftovers and they have 12 baskets full of bread. Who knows what happened to the fish leftovers? You know, those things were sucked dry. There was literally none because they're not mentioned at this point. And now the people get excited, right? And they start to think, well, you know, we follow Jesus for these signs. Well, maybe, and maybe it's because it's Passover. Maybe they're excited about the Passover. They start thinking about Moses, right? And they start thinking about the prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy. This sort of this idea that a new Moses is going to come and lead the people. And they're like, yes, Moses is back. We're going to make him king. The text says we're going to take him by force. I don't know if you usually do that with a king. It doesn't really feel proper, right? It's like you shouldn't force a king to do anything, but they're ready to. And Jesus, right, he's not going to be pressured into kingship. We've seen this throughout the text so far. Whenever people are trying to force Jesus to do something, he pushes back. Because he's going to do what the Father has invited him to do, not what a bunch of humans think he should do. Right, and he goes behind another mountain and hides. Probably just walks over a couple hills, finds a little rock, and retreats. That's kind of the story, right? But what does it mean? To get at the meaning, I think we actually need to go back to the first sign in John 2. Right, Jesus is at a wedding. He's at Cana, and they've run out of wine. It's going to be a social disgrace for the host to run out of wine at a first century wedding. I mean, you think of your wedding, this is like times a hundred. You're like total disgrace in the community if you run out of wine. Now you've failed as a host. Runs out of wine. Jesus makes not only wine, but better wine. Higher quality wine. Right out of, makes six big purification jars worth of it. And there's even more that they could have. Right now, the thing is, when we read that story, we didn't think in our minds, or at least I didn't, I know maybe you did, like, all right, the next time I throw a killer party, guess who I'm inviting over? Jesus. You know, I'll just bring a little bit and he'll make up for the rest. I'll bring some two buck chuck and he'll bring this awesome cab. We didn't think that way, right? Because that's not John's point. The point is not, hey, if you throw a party, invite Jesus, he'll bring you lots of wine. John is tapping into a profound and deep hope among the Jewish people. Right? That one day, when God's kingdom comes, there will be this huge party, a huge wedding feast. 
And at that feast, there will be tons of celebration. Isaiah says it this way. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Isaiah 25. And Jesus will pick up on this idea throughout the New Testament as he's telling stories about it, what it looks like when the kingdom comes, that there will be this feast, right? God's people will gather from east and west, north and south. They will all come together and it will be this wedding, right? Revelation picks up on this too. It will be Jesus marrying his bride, the church. And what John is saying in chapter two is that Jesus is the great host of this feast, N.T. Wright says it this way, the wedding is a foretaste of the great heavenly feast in store for God's people. Right? The goodness we experience today is a crumb fallen off the table from the future feast that is coming. Now, when we look at our story today, right, this feast idea actually comes in again. See, in John 2, Jesus provided the wine, and in John 6, Jesus provides the bread. He provides the food, right? Again, this isn't simply like, hey, if you're going to go backpacking and you want to have a light backpack, invite Jesus because he'll give you plenty of food for the journey, right? That's not what John is getting at, right? Just as in chapter two, right? John or Jesus provided the wine. Here he provides the bread. Just as in chapter two, the wine he provides is better in quality and there's plenty of it. So here, there's an abundance, there's a leftover so that God's people have more than they need. Not just a little, they have leftovers. Twelve baskets left over, enough for all the twelve tribes of Israel, right? Enough for all of God's people. Now, if you remember, though, this isn't just about the feast, right? This is sort of presenting who Jesus is. That's the point of the signs. But there's more going on, actually, in this one than there was in chapter 2. Remember, this is set in the context of the Passover, right? The Passover is a celebration that happens, a remembrance that happens to remember Egypt, to remember the Exodus. The people want to make Jesus a Moses figure, And God makes manna in the wilderness. He makes bread in the place where there was no food. All of these signs, John is saying, point to Jesus as the one who is going to initiate a new exodus. Now, the exodus. Now, if you're not familiar, there's a book. It's the second book of the Bible, second book of the Torah, right? The book of Exodus. The first, like, 14 chapters are about God hearing the cries of his people trapped in slavery and then bringing them out via signs, taking them out of a ruthless sort of situation where they are oppressed by Pharaoh, by the king. They're brought out by signs, brought into the wilderness where they're then aligned with Yahweh. Right? They go from the rule of Pharaoh to the rule of Yahweh. And then God feeds them with bread in the wilderness. Now, a first century reader is going to automatically click into these different echoes into the Old Testament. Oh, the great feast. 
oh, John is saying that Jesus is like a new Moses, initiating a new exodus, and this is deeply connected to the gospel, right? The Passover is approaching, right? The people of Israel are now ruled by Rome. They're longing for a king, a Messiah to come and rescue them, to institute a new kingdom that they can participate in, right? And just as God heard the cries of the people in Egypt, So he looks down and sees the people in the wilderness wandering and he wants to free them, right, from Roman rule. So he wants to feed them as they long for food in a wild place. And John is saying, Jesus is like a new Moses, initiating a new exodus, that God's Messiah has come, that exile is ending that oppression is ending and he is going to take care of their needs. Now, we've seen multiple times in John, though, that the people kind of get the sign and they kind of don't get it. And we see that again here, right? They see these echoes. So then they're like, yes, Moses is here. We're going to force him to be king. And what does Jesus do? He's like, no. Like, you get it, but you don't. My kingdom is not going to be sort of forced into fruition by your will, people. Marion Meyer Thompson, she's a fuller prof, she says this, the shape of his kingship is not determined by any human agenda, but by God's life-giving purposes in the world. God is up to something. And he's echo- John is echoing back to this great feast idea and the Exodus to sort of help them see what it is about. But in the end, they kind of miss it. Now, the question is, at this point, right, we've looked at sort of the first century, we've told the story, we've looked at the first century meaning. The question is now, how does it translate to us? You're like, that's great. Like, whoa, Exodus, feast, like, now what? What do I do with this? And I think starting from a very personal relational side, just to say this, that God sees you today. Just as he heard the cries of the Hebrew people trapped in Egypt, and he came, he saw them, and he did something about it, so he sees you today. In the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus looks out on this crowd, he says that uh, Jesus has compassion on them. You know, what we see in this text is these people, they see these signs, they try and follow Jesus, they get overextended, and maybe you feel like that today. You come in here and you're wondering, like, man, life is a little harder than I thought it would be. Maybe you come in with particular burdens and you're wondering whether you're alone in it. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking of, uh, or a, a story came to mind when I worked in the group homes uh, when I was in my 20s, worked in these group homes for kids, mostly Norteños. Uh, so it's a Northern California gang and uh, mostly drug addiction. And there was this guy, I'll just use a fake name uh, for confidentiality, but his name was Mondo. And uh, Mondo was this big dude. He was super tough. He was not going to be pushed around by anyone. And... Mondo had a really super, I mean, just a super intense upbringing and had some real wounds from his family. He had been in the group home maybe a year or so and no one had visited him. And then this one week, his dad says, oh, I'm going to come. 
And he's like, literally, you know, it was like 16 or something. He went back to like, he was acting like he was three, just like giddy, excited, just couldn't contain the joy, right? So that Saturday when visits were going to happen, I remember sitting on the picnic bench behind the group home with Mondo for the first half an hour as he's just excited. And then another hour passes and another, and no one comes. And I remember watching Mondo, this big, tough guy, just weeping on this picnic table, just wanting to see his dad. And I share this story because I think sometimes in the spiritual life, we feel totally alone and we wonder whether God sees us. We're sitting on a bench in the back of a group home, wondering whether we are just kind of abandoned. You're struggling, life is hard. And I think what God wants us to know in this moment is that Jesus has compassion on us that he sees us no matter what's going on in your life. Secondly, though, I would say God doesn't just see us. He also rescues and provides. Right? When God looked down from heaven and looked down into Egypt, he didn't just see the people, right? He went and did something about it. He went into the mix of this very broken system and he brought rescue, right? And then once he rescued, he brought them out of alignment with Pharaoh into alignment with himself. What did he do? He provided. What do we see here, right? Jesus is saying, hey, I want to provide liberation for you, not just from Rome, but just from all the things that we end up worshiping that are not God. And in the midst of that, he wants to provide for us. But I think two things go wrong here. One is, like, if you read the story of the Exodus, the people, God does these awesome things, right? He's rescuing them, but often they want to go back to the comfort of Egypt. They're constantly like, well, but I know this. It's more comfortable. I can control this. Walking out into the wilderness and depending on daily bread is hard for a lot of us. So rather than trusting God, we go back to Egypt. Two... Not only do we do that, but even in the midst of it, think of this story, right? God is doing this awesome thing, and what do they do? They sort of misinterpret it or sort of get it right, but sort of get it wrong. And then they try and force Jesus into their own agenda. I'm going to make you king, you know? I was thinking about this because it totally reminds me of when I was in my early 20s, and I was in the Peace Corps, and my mom got really, really sick. So sick that I had to fly back. I'm an only child, so I had to fly back to be with her. And I was her primary caregiver. And it was brutal. Brutal. I remember just seeing her in pain all the time, not sure if she was going to live or not. And I remember during that season, constantly being like, God, you need to heal my mom. And that whole time, I was getting bitter and resentful that God was not healing my mom. I was totally oblivious to what God was doing in the midst of it because I was so focused on what I wanted, my, how I wanted that prayer answered. I was so focused on, God, why is my mom suffering? And I missed out on how God was equipping me and giving me gifts so that I could make it through that season. Like these amazing mentors he put into my life that like were unbelievably kind, helped me to see what was going on in deep ways. But I was so focused, right? 
on getting the answer I wanted that I missed out on what God was actually doing. I think sometimes we get like that, don't we? Tough stuff is happening, and we try and sort of force our agenda into God's. We try and make God's plan our plan, and then we get mad at God when he doesn't do it our way, which is kind of understandable when you're going through hard times. I think that's sort of our default reaction, not to trust that Jesus will give us the daily bread we need to make it through. We, try and get, we kind of get mad at God for not doing it the way we want it. My invitation to you today, sort of trusting that God sees us, trusting that God rescues and provides, for the next 14 days, I invite you to pick one area of your life that you would like God to show up in. Maybe you feel stuck in it. Maybe there's something there that bothers you that you're just like, God, I need you to rescue me. I need you to provide. And for the next 14 days, pray about that one area every day. But rather than looking for one very specific answer to prayer that you'll accept, actually sort of be open to how God is meeting you and gracious and kind to you in the midst of it. Just a very open posture. How is God seeing you and providing for you in the midst of it? I think we might be surprised how present, loving, and kind God actually is if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable in his presence and listen to the ways he actually is moving and drawing near us. Does that make sense? Kind of? Thank you. I got a yes. Boom. All right, three. God sees us. God rescues and provides. And three, God is our hope. See, most of our lives, we live in the present and maybe we study the past, right? Our future focus is a little more like financial, so like, or like career advancement or maybe kids. Now, you know, those are basically the three ways we look into the future, more or less. But when we actually read the New Testament, it's a very future-focused document. Like the people of God are often looking forward to God's kingdom coming. They're very focused on the feast to come. God establishing his kingdom on earth. They're very focused on this idea of a liberation where God's going to come, establish his kingdom, and remove evil and wrong and oppression from our world. And their actual hope hinges on this. But I find most of us in the United States, our lives are so focused on the present. When we just get caught up in all the things we're juggling. You know, and we are focused on the future a little bit, but it's, again, it's more financial. Are we saving enough? Two, are our kids, if you have children, it's like, are they getting the educational needs and sort of the resumes sort of stuff and all the good, all the good things that'll get them into a good college, get them a good job, all those things, become good character, you know, have good character, all those things. Not bad things. All good things. I think all things God probably wants us to think about. But it is easy for those things to become the totality of our hope and future expectation. As I was sort of thinking about this message, had this picture in my mind of, so imagine like this banquet, you know, this feast. You know, God is providing this feast for us. And rather than sort of 
expectantly waiting to have our hunger and thirst satisfied by this feast. We're sort of like crawling around the ground looking for crumbs. And we're eating the crumbs and we're satisfying our hunger and we do this for long enough that we forget that there is a feast to come. That our hope wasn't ultimately to be met by the crumbs on the ground, but there is something better on the way. And I guess my question to you today is like, are you satisfied? Or do you find yourself sort of satisfied by your present? Or do you find yourself longing to be with Jesus at the feast that is to come? Do you find yourself thinking, all we need to do is elect the right president or get this right person into office or change this nonprofit and then it'll be awesome? Because that's not the hope of the scriptures. The hope of the scriptures is that God is going to come in power in his kingdom and he is going to right the wrongs of the earth. And that the ultimate satisfaction we get is when we encounter Jesus in this feast, we are with him and with each other celebrating the goodness of God. And we started this morning with, uh, you know, a prayer that Jesus taught us. We prayed about daily bread. We studied a passage on Jesus feeding people with bread. We talked about the great feast to come and the Exodus and the Passover. It seems only fitting that we would also talk about uh, the meal that Jesus gave us to remember him. You know, it's interesting. If you think about it, Jesus didn't give us a theory. He didn't give us an idea. And he didn't give us a metaphor to remember him. He gave us a Passover meal. He said, if you want to know me, if you want to remember me, do this. On the night he was betrayed, he took some bread. He gave thanks for it. He took that bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It should be broken for you and for everyone, right? So that sins may be forgiven. He says, take it. Eat it. Jesus also took the wine as it was at the table. He said, this is my This is my blood. And the blood of the new covenant that will be shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Take it and drink it. And as the disciples did this on the eve of the Passover, they didn't know what would happen, but we do. The next day, Jesus would give himself for them. He would die for them so they could experience the liberation at the heart of the new exodus. They could become God's people in a profound new way. And this morning, right, we remember Jesus and we choose him by participating in communion.
One of the things we're going to do is I'm going to invite you in a few minutes as we enter worship, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And we're going to come forward as a group, as a way of saying, hey, together we are seeking the person of Jesus and we are going to align our lives with his kingdom. This is not just individuals connecting to God. This is a community trying to follow him. And when you come up, I'm going to say, you know, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And you're going to grab a little piece of bread. And I'm going to say, the blood of Jesus broken for you. You're going to dip it in there. And then you're going to eat it as a way of saying, Jesus, I receive you. I receive your love. I receive your goodness. And I want to embrace your teachings and live within your kingdom. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're like, I don't know about this whole God thing. And you're like, I don't want to sit in the pew by myself. Feel free to come forward and just say, hey, can I have a blessing? And I'll just say a blessing over you of a way of saying, hey, so glad you're here. May God reveal himself to you in profound and beautiful ways. That's what we're going to do now. Let's invite the worship team up. But I do invite you to just take a moment before celebrating communion and just say, all right, God. And what does it look like to be honest with God in this moment? Just say, all right, God. These are the ways that I feel like I'm having a hard time trusting you. Help me. These are the ways I feel like my life is not aligning with your kingdom. Help me to embrace you more fully today. It's an opportunity for us to just sort of get honest with God for a moment in the quiet of this place. Let me just pray for us. Jesus, we, we love you. We love you. God, I do ask in this moment that we would feel seen by you. God, for those of us struggling, we would sense your presence, your nearness, your care, and your affection. God, for those of us who come in this morning unsure about how to follow you, God, I pray that you would give wisdom. God, you would give guidance. God, reveal yourself to us that we may know you more, that we may remember you and bring you glory in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, I pray.